Hello and welcome to today's Northern Slant hosts with me, Roger Greer. Today I'm joined by former MLA, uh, former Deputy Leader of the Ulster Unionist Party and of NI21, uh, now leading the Land Mobility Programme at Ulster Farmers Union and Young Farmers Club and board member of the Community, uh, Community Relations Council, John McAllister. Thanks very much for joining us. Oh, pleasure, Roger. Great to speak to you. Um, yours has been one of the more interesting political careers in Northern Ireland um, and you seem a very reasonable and um, normal person, what, what on earth led you to politics? That, that, that's, uh, <laughs> maybe that's uh, too normal the way it all uh, cut short or something, you know. Yeah. I, I suppose probably like a lot of people, I, you know, I grew up um, through the troubles, but I had a huge interest in politics growing up and just watching uh, what was happening and you know even from a young age watching election coverage and stuff like that and watching you know Mrs Thatcher cruising to a second term and then a third term and uh, almost being shocked in 1990 when when she changed to John Major that you know that was the first time I could actually recall in my living memory that happening you know it seemed yeah. like she'd been there forever. Um, a huge interest in politics and the way it was developing and, and evolving and always wanted to do something. But primarily, I suppose, like most people it might always sound, you know, very tried and tested. I wanted to give something back to the community. I wanted to be able to help solve problems rather than, you know, necessarily be be the problem. I wanted to be part of solving problems, helping constituents. Um, you know, it was always surprising that um, the letters MLA after your name could actually open many doors and, and get things moving for uh, and start problems being looked at that had, you know, sat on a in, a, in an inbox somewhere. Yeah. And that was that was the motivation for me, pure and simple. Was I, I thought. Uh, I something to contribute, and uh, I want to try and do that and to help and to serve. Yeah, and why the UUP? Was it just a natural fit at that time? It was a totally a natural, natural fit. Um, uh, very much, you know, growing up, um, you know, through the nineteen eighties, watching, um, you know, obviously the late Doctor Paisley in full flow at that time as an MP, an MEP, and, uh, you know, it was very much, um, I didn't sit easy with me, that sort of mix of politics and religion, and uh, I was very much a natural, I suppose, Ulster Unionist, and probably particularly, actually, when um, David Trimble was elected leader, and I, I wouldn't have been a natural supporter. I was, uh, can tell you, and I'm, I'm sure I've said to David himself, but probably the day I was elected later, uh, I was a bit despairing because we'd come back off the summer of him and Paisley walking down um, uh, at Drum Cree, and I thought, no, no, really, this, <laughs> this isn't, this isn't what, what we need. Um, but uh, I realised that maybe helped him get uh, win the leadership um, in 1995. You know, I, I voted very enthusiastically um, 
for the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. And I've never changed my mind, you know, 20, what we're just shy of 23 years. So, so the, you know, by 1998, um, the Ulster Unions was, was very much my not certain fit. I'd, when I first voted, I was voting for the Ulster Unionist Party and I consistently voted. That's probably slightly sad even now. I would desperately love to be able to vote for the Ulster Unionist Party, but probably just don't feel it quite represents me or where I'm, where I'm at. I, 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 wish, I wish that wasn't so, but that's where we are. Yeah, I'll touch on, on that a little bit later, but you were elected to the Assembly in 2007, um, and I suppose the circumstances are slightly different um, with restored power, but similar in that we've got an Assembly now that we didn't have um, prior to that. Um, I'd imagine Belfast Festival a couple of years ago um, for the Northern Slant, you'd said that one of the one of the, the important things at that time in the Assembly was out of office and there was no um, executive was that... Um, psychologically just speaking to your colleagues from across the house asking them how they were and how their families were was a really important bit of just that process of governing um what are your memories from back whenever you were first elected and did you feel like it was like that it was it was good just to be able to speak to colleagues and and get to know them personally and that helps along the process absolutely you know it's it's a key it's a key part of it and look we're we're, you know, 10 months now into lockdown where people are working from home. And yes, many people are enjoying that and we may not ever work fully back in an office environment again, but I certainly think we will have a much more blended approach. We still, as individuals, as people, we still crave to see other people and whether it's, it's you and I chatting, you know, over a cup of tea in the canteen or, yeah. or you know, standing waiting for the office printer to, to work or whatever it happens to be, you get to know people. So that was hugely important. When I went in 2007, so in March 2007 election um, was really held in the back of the St Andrews Agreement at the end of 2006. Um, Sinn Féin and started to go on to the policing board, cleared the way for yeah. the election. Um, and, uh, you know, the opportunity came up. Um, Dermot Nesbitt, my predecessor, wasn't standing. I, you know, toyed with the idea of putting my, my hat in for selection, not really expecting to get it, but thinking, you know, look, you could wait years for a chance like this to come round again. So when got selected, and ultimately got elected. I mean, it's quite a strange feeling walking or driving up to storm at the first time and you yeah. stop the security and well, you know, actually, <laughs> and so suddenly it changes to sir, and oh, yeah, you know, that, that's that and the other, and you're going to look, and John's fine, really. But they, um, and you go up on the, the day, and you know, when I arrived up and started to find my way around, we didn't know whether power was actually going to be restored. There was still a huge, a huge bet that you know that um, Paisley would never, would never do that, um, that would never get it over the line. Could the DUP sell this to the base? Um, 
So, you know, you're elected um, a new member, but you don't actually know, will, will this thing collapse? Will it run? Will it run the course? And then, um, so I was elected on the 7th of March. Um, the end of March, Paisley and, and Adams had their first face-to-face -face meeting in the in the members' dining room, and the tables sat at, a, at a, an angle to each other, so that they, uh, to keep all the optics right. And you know, on the eighth of May, power was devolved back to the Northern Ireland Assembly. And I mean, even even being there that day, you know, as you as you looked round and a glittering array of who's who from politics. Um, and there's little old me, newly elected member in the middle of it. And at one point in the Great Hall and Storm, I turn round um, and suddenly there's Tony Blair standing in front of him and I'm shaking hands with the Prime Minister. And, and I'm still chatting to him. I can feel a message going off in my phone. And when I checked it later, it was somebody said, just joking after I'd seen the live coverage of me speaking to, to the Prime Minister. And um, Nearly telling me I'd need to wash my hands after that. Or <laughs> um, but it was, you know, and people like the late Senator Edward Kennedy, you know, had travelled over and to meet somebody like that, um, John Reid, who'd been Secretary of State and Home Secretary, you know, there was just a glittering array. And I suppose it did strike me as somebody who was born, you know, in, in February 1972, in the worst year of the Troubles and struck me as I watched, you know, the late Ian Paisley and the late Martin McGuinness come down the stairs with um, Tony Blair and Bertie Ahern. It did strike me, the one question was, what was it all for? You know, where could we not have done this in 1972, 73? You know, my generation wouldn't have had to grow up in what we grew up in, in fact, get to, uh, get, make it into our early 20s before um, the ceasefires would kick in. Um, but still, there was an overwhelming sense of relief that here we were. Yeah, um, and you uh, you took those steps from MLA and committee into standing for the, the leadership um, and against Mike Nesbitt, um, who then he won the leadership and appointed you deputy. Um, but then removed you from that position when you uh, you made a speech about unionism sleep or also unionism sleepwalking into unionist unity. Um, mm -hmm. Did it surprise you how much you and the party grew apart during that time, right up onto that point when you uh, you quit over actual agreed unionist unity? Yes, it it did. I mean, I was I was appointed deputy leader by by Tom initially, oh, yeah, Tom Elliott and. Um, so I'd been deputy about 18 months and though Tom and I probably not in, in political terms like I'm an, not an sort of fit in the sense that I'm very much seen as a very liberal unionist Tom, fairly traditional, but Tom and I had a very good working relationship. You know, if if, if either of us had something to say to one another, if we said it, you know, you didn't you do hear you do seem like two straight talking sort of men. We, you know, and, and, and hence, you know, and I, I was very fond of Tom. I still um, occasionally have him in, in the Wild West. I, I 
giving a shout and maybe uh, making buy me a cup of tea or something um, and then a skilling. But um, and then we went through um, we went through you know through the leadership election. After that, was one of the most um, fun election campaigns I I really ever had, and I felt and probably still feel to this day that I'd very much you know. Won all the battles, but lost the war, and, lo and lost it yeah. significantly. I mean, Mike, you know, not not lost up. Mike had what an eighty, you know, I couldn't even hold it to full twenty percent. I think it was at nineteen point something percent to Mike's, you know, just short of eighty one, eighty one percent. So overwhelming um, uh, victory, and I probably knew that. Had I won, I needed to really, the party needed to look and feel different. It needed, yeah. you know, it just, we just couldn't do more of the same. And I really had thought, and, and you'll hear a lot of it from Wednesday on about Joe Biden's first 100 days. I really thought roughly from the end of March, the leadership election was the 31st of March. Um, and you had through roughly a hundred days was going to take you to summer recess thereabouts. So I thought you really need to hit the ground running. And I was probably at that point then as we went through April, May, June, I was quite depressed that I didn't see anything happening or changing, you know. Um, I, I did feel that Mike had the chance to appoint a party chairman he appointed, you know, one of his predecessors, Ray Jempe, and he appointed Tom back on the party officer team. And I did think, yes, nothing quite says, nothing quite says change, like bringing back. Regard. The <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, and that, that's fine. That was his prerogative to do. He, he kept me on as, as um, party leader or party deputy leader. Um, but I never felt in the, in the next six months that, it was, you know, really up to much, you know, in the sense that I was involved in very, very little. But then I suppose uh, I did my speech. Mike, you know, was, was really annoyed that I'd used the phrase sleepwalking into unity. Um, and he said there was no plans to do, to, to do anything Union, I said the perceptions there, but it was that phrase that really annoyed him out of, you know, a 20 minute speech. It was that one line, um, uh, as they say, that one line, what did it? Yeah. Um, so the following uh, day, um, I, you know, uh, I did a bit for Inside Politics. And again, I, I made that point to Mark Davenport that, look, that was what this was just warning about the dangers. And then, uh, but I got a, a message from Mike to come and see him the next morning. And um, at that point I knew I was um, going to be fired. And uh, there was nothing else for it, only take uh, Jane the kids for an ice cream, you know, on a Sunday afternoon when you're yeah. going to be fired the next day. It, you know, I just thought we were in the wrong place. Then the flags protest, was kicking off. And we seem to get bogged into things like, 
you know, when those suggestions from people like Edwin Poots and, and other DUP members about doing, you know, with the numbers to put the flag up three, six, five days. And I remember seeking assurances from Mike Nesbitt about, are we going to, I think it was Leslie Cree was our man in the commission at the time. You know, I don't want to go down this road. Yeah, you know, polarization. Polarization. And it just, it just wasn't for me. Does the flag offend me? Of course not. The flag of, and it does offend me when I see it flown badly or upside down or in tatters, but um, that's a slightly different issue. Yeah. So we went on through that autumn and winter and we were wrecking Belfast and wrecking our economy um, and our image abroad on and really shaking the institutions to their to their very core. And then we, you know, we come up with a brilliant idea that we'd form a unionist forum and bring all unionists together to talk to each other. I don't and think there was very much talking that went on as part of that forum, though, was there? <clears throat> no, there was a, the, to my understanding, there was there was very little talking went on. But again, the image went in that here's unionism circling the wagons again with no set agenda or no outcome. And the one thing that, you know, kept coming up, the one theme was things like, uh, you know, the difficulties in Protestant working class communities. And I would have made the point to some people that, oddly, if that was your issue about educational underachievement in Protestant working classes, probably Martin McGuinness's door would have been as easy to push open and get support in funding programs and, and real interventions that could, could help make a difference in, in areas like that. But instead we were tearing the place apart um, and demanding the flag go back up at City Hall and indeed at Stormont in every day of the year. And, and I made it clear to the party that I didn't and, you know, happy with designated days, but I wasn't going to a three, six, five day flying the flag. And that was, so as we went through January, you know, it became obvious I was sort of like, you know, every time I even moved my chair, oh, what's wrong with him now, you know, and, yeah. and it was becoming. And then, I suppose the straws broke the camel's back. I could see it coming right back from June the following, the previous year. Yeah. It, was, it was fairly open that Martin McGuinness was going to stand down as the Mid-Ulster MP. And that was, that was up to him. I was asked as far back as June as to what I thought. And I said, well, I mean, it's perfectly obvious. We run Sandra Overend, Sandra loyally tramps around the constituency, visits the faithful, gathers up a list of constituency jobs to do and roads to fix and signs to replace and all the things. Exactly what I had, had done in my 2010 um, Conservative UCOMF election. Um, famously, toured, famously named UCOMF. The famously named UCOMF. <laughs> toured around South Down, you know, met the faithful, shook a few hands. Um, drank a few cups of tea, um, all, of, all of that, and had too many buns, and got a list of things to do, and got reassured that, look, we'll be with you next year. The, the bit I 
thought and still think was it was was a completely wrong image for the party to create, you know, that you were doing a unity candidate. Here you were at various elections in the past, cutting the, the line and out of the DUP, and now we were saying go and vote for our unity candidate. Mike and Peter out, you know, eating an ice cream together, um, looking as comfortable as Blair and Brown. But, you know, and, and then when you when you announced it, and that, so I knew that week, even from the team meeting on the Monday, where Mike had said something, look, if this comes off, I think it's phrased as something that potentially could be very exciting. And I think, no, no, they're going to do a unity candidate. Yeah. So I started um, chipping away at, at a resignation letter. And, and I mean, I talked it over at home and I knew that I knew that I could well be in political terms signing my own death warrant, you know, that this was a political career over. So I knew that, you know, I was very cognizant of how serious a decision this was, but I just didn't want to stay on. Yeah, and you famously signed that death warrant on, on live TV after the results. And, uh, yes. Came and, in. And, <laughs> Uh, uh, no, it was on the, it was the day the, it was announced. Yeah, it was odd even, it, wasn't it? It was, it was, well, I can tell you the date of it because I was at home and I'd threw a, a very quick romantic dinner. It was St. Valentine's Day. Oh, was it? 2013. <laughs> um, uh, and I was due to be on The View um, to do, to talk about health and one of my interests in, in long-term care and how we fund long-term care. And uh, the Cameron government had, had published the Dillnot report and stuff like that. And we really didn't have a debate here about how we would fund it or look at it or take it seriously. So um, we then, I was due to be on to talk about that. And then I uh, pushed the button on the other. Yeah. I did to tell him and I, I told him and then I emailed him my letter and uh, then that's, that was me. Uh, I resigned on live television on BBC's The View, you know. That I, was I, that. And I then you, do, so. yeah, and then you, um, after that, joined or formed NA21 with, with Basil McRae and I sort of watched in, in 2018, 2019 when Change UK or <clears throat> the independent group Tiger, the independent group for change or whatever way they decided to name themselves yeah. at the end of it were formed in the UK uh, and remember back to NA21 and how difficult it was to form a, new, a, you know, a wholly new party because you're up against everybody um, and it seemed that you were up against yes. everybody including those who up until very recently were completely on your side or at least normally on your side. Um, did you think it would mm -hmm. be that hard? I, I knew it would I suppose I knew it was going to be really difficult because you're trying to do lots of things plus continuing to do your your day job, if you like. Yeah. You're wanting to... So you're, you're still having to represent your constituents in the Assembly. You're still having to attend lots of constituency events and you're now trying to build some type of political party movement, whatever you want to call it. You know, it was, 
it was fun and was exciting, you know, doing doing that. But the one advantage we would have had, and this applies, I think, to Change UK, which I, I was I was um, uh, sort of amused that one of the names that I had sort of toyed about with before NI21 name come up was actually Change NI or Reform NI. So change, and I'd, I'd about Change NI, Reform maybe sounds too much like some right wing, yeah. uh, you know, a hard right thing. But um, it's, uh, it was, uh, that was, you know, so you could have Change NI and Change UK. I suspect they, they encountered one of the same difficulties. They went, instead of using the newness to be, to tighter define what it is you're about, Yeah, they opened it up to too broad a base. Um, yeah. And we, you know, Basel was much more into just numbers rather than, you know, maybe speaking to people and someday going, um, you know, for example, one guy that, was in NI21, is now a member of the Communist Party of Ireland. Well, like, you go, on what planet do you mix those two yeah. political traditions? Um, you know, so that, that was that was where, where I, um, where I think it went. But it was, I mean, it was exciting doing, yeah, you know. You had quite a bit of momentum uh, as well. I mean, you had good it, candidates it, for the Europeans and Tina McKenzie, and it seemed to have a bit of... Mm -hmm. spark about it but i suppose to end the way that it did not in an out you know due to a lot of dysfunction as well as political defeat was that a, oh, I, a, a huge disappointment yeah. it was a huge disappointment but also by the time the end came it was relief just to be to, to be oh really out, you know quite quite frankly i just wasn't i mean my probably if i was charting ni21 we had a few meetings in the in the April and, and putting a bit of the bones. I had, you know, I would have drafted most of what are we about, what it is we want this party to be about. And then with the launch in, in, in the 6th of June in 2013, D-Day, you know, of all, uh, of all days. And, and I would probably say the high water mark of NI21 was the, the party conference. The, the main things we were championing that day were, right, we need to reform Stormont and make our executive and assembly functional. Um, so we we can't make the party yeah. function, but the executive <laughs> function. So we, we were electing a, we elected a party executive, but the main themes for the wider public were you reform Stormont and make it functional, and then you start and look about devolving tax variant powers. And this was an exciting message for a, a pro-union party yeah. to become and say, no, we should devolve tax variant powers. This was traditionally seen as something that SDLP and Sinn Féin would have called for, but no self-respecting unionist wanted to do this, whereas actually we were going, no, this is... We need a much clearer link between what is what's um, money you spent and what money you raise. You know, we were very much at the forefront of a party saying, bear in mind this was, our conference was November 13th, so 10 months 
before the Scottish independence referendum. Yeah. And we were very much saying, look, whatever happens next, next September, the nature of devolution is going to change. Now, I hope Scotland very much stay in the union as they did, but the nature is going to change and much more power. You know, whatever happens, they will end up with more power. That will be quite, you know, part of the settlement and deal. And we needed to move much beyond this idea that, you know, we just need more money from Westminster to solve all our ills, you know, more money. You know, we need to start thinking about policy and ideas. And we'd also put out the, the drawing a line in the past, which was a difficult message to sell. Um, but we had a really, we'd a really good day. We had an Irish government minister in the form of Brian Hayes up, and he was, you know, a number two in their Department of Finance, talking about tax, very much making the point, with small changes, you can drive different behaviour. And yeah. this was the sort of stuff um, that uh, I thought was a really important message to get out there. Um, not to me was the high watermark. And even for a week after our conference, we'd comments from the finance minister, who was Simon Hamilton at the time, and the first minister, Peter Robinson, still, you know, in the news and making headlines, which, you know, was exactly what you want. Even they're having a go at you. It's exactly what you want to have set an agenda. And yeah. that, that to me was the high point of, of NI21. And then we hit the skids. Um, after that, you know, we, we went, um, by the time February 2014 had come, there was the on the runs letters. Yeah. Um, and here was a party that wanted to draw a line in the past was suddenly given commentary about on the runs and, and we give a position on the Wednesday when that story broke changed it on the Thursday we're back to Wednesday's position by the Friday and we're in Thursday's position by the Monday and by Tuesday I didn't know where we were and that was mainly you know Owen to, to, to Basel seemed to want to be on the news you know, on that. And I was saying this, you know, this isn't, this isn't the demographic of where an NI21 voter is. It's not one that we need to be involved in. I mean, it, it did cement my view that whatever you're doing with the past, you need to do it across the board. Mm. You know, if you draw a line in the past, draw it, but you draw it for everybody. You know, um, uh, Republican, British Army, RUC, you draw the line, but you don't give letters to one or make a, a, a yeah. stand execution for somebody else. But that, that a, a sort of aside, but it took Peter and I to April to sort of persuade Basel that we were in the wrong place. And then by April, we were into to whatever allegations had been thrown at Basel. We were into a care call investigation, then it was stopped. Then we were into um, uh, Douglas Bean, the Standards Commissioner, looking at it. And yes, you know, at, at the end of it, Basel was was cleared by the Commission. There was some criticism from the Committee of Standards Privileges um, about behaviour falling short, but there was there was those issues 
uh, you know, an NI21 just as a new entity wasn't able to deal or had no way of dealing or answering. And look, it would have been easier for me, and I suspect I might have been electorally more successful in 2016 had I stayed just as an independent and tried to do something like Claire Sugden, who's, you know, built a wonderful reputation in East Londonderry. Um, but I, I never regret doing it in I-21 because even, even as recently as, as when we were last able to go out somewhere, you know... Feels like a some, lifetime ago. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, it does but, but say, you know, five and a half years after NI-21, someone walked up to me in a bar and said, oh, you're the guy from NI-21. I thought what you were doing was amazing. And I yeah. said, well, thank you, you know, because for a brief time in 2013, we saw a nice bright light as to what normal in Northern Ireland might look like. You know, what 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 would a normal Northern Ireland look like? And, um, you know, we, we did all of those things. And uh, I just think, you know, it, it, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy that unionism needs, you know, needs an NI-21. Um, probably even the tragedy is that, well, I'm quite sure the Ulster Unions Party and many members had a good old chuckle at Basel and I, you know, falling, falling out, falling apart and, and all of NI-21. They should have looked and said, well, the lads were on to something. Yeah. They need. And I'm not saying that the Ulster Unions Party had ever been as liberal as NI-21, but they needed to look and say, there's some of those, there's some of those clothes we should, we should, re-engage with and put back on again. They're they're fundamentally where, where we should be. And particularly over, I think, over things that come up afterwards, like the, the Brexit debate, you know, having a unionist, a pro-union party that was very firmly uh, in the Bre in the in the pro-Remain camp, I think would have been would have been an important dynamic. Yeah, and I suppose know, looking at the centenary coming around the corner. Sorry, I was going to say looking at the no, centenary yeah. coming around the corner, and unionism is still in that challenging place. And um, you, you mentioned Brexit, but there's been strategic and tactical challenges that unionism sort of faced and failed over the last few years. Loss of majority of unionism at Stormont, and more calls for United Ireland. And I suppose the wheels haven't fallen off unionism, but we're in need of a, a really good service. Um, how should you? Know, with those, there were the failures of NI21, but the failure of unionism to pick up those middle ground and the gains that Alliance have made, how should unionism use that centenary commemoration to sort of claw back some of the initiative? What, what, could, what could they do? I think they probably need in a, in a positive light much more to be out, you know, speaking, speaking about the, you know, the benefits of the union, not even talking about a United Ireland as if it's some sort of fait accompli, you know, but actually talking about the benefits of the union and making the union a place of welcoming for everyone. Unionism is an awful habit of even saying that, um, oh, well, you're really an alliance type anyway, so why don't you just 
you know, clear off and go to the Alliance. And so many people, like if you look at the city of Belfast, I think in, in you know, someone told you, even back when I was first elected, never mind maybe 10 years before that, that the Green Party would poll more in Belfast than the Ulster Unionist Party. You had been absolutely shocked. I mean, the Ulster Unionist Party is down to two um, council seats in Belfast. So I think they, it needs to be a much more positive engagement with people. They need to make it much better at speaking, at speaking to people other than just themselves. As I said earlier, I desperately want to vote for the Ulster Unionist Party, but I'm not clear on what they're about and that they're appealing to me. I know it is, you know, no cliche, but I do strongly feel that the party left me rather than me leaving the party. I feel they moved on to a different ground. You know, yes, they were in theory, uh, you know, Mike Nesbitt was a pro-Romain voter and campaigned for that. But Robin Swan was a Brexiteer. Um, you know, you'd, you'd no clear message that there were really, or sense that they were really clear um, pro-Romain party. When it came to the European vote in May 2019, I had no idea what the UUP wanted to do. So here I'm desperately wanting to vote for the UUP, but having to vote for Alliance. And the same when, say, Theresa May's deal came around, should the uh, Ulster Union's party not have backed that? And here we've ended up where we are. And I just don't get a sense that they're putting unionism, putting a message out to sell. Where, and when it always one of my big things about unionist unity was one it, it decreased the circle of voters that you're appealing to. You know, with this idea that if you put out uh, a Christian orange man who was a victim, we'd hit the Holy Grail in candidates, and that yeah. every all the faithful, if you'd anything about you, you'll have to come out and vote for it, and you know, stop doing that because unity always involves unifying around the head-banging wing of unionism. It never, there's nobody ever says let's unify around liberal liberal unionists like John or, or you know, there's nobody, yeah. there's nobody does that because nobody comes out and says or where unionism was on on equal marriage or on termination of pregnancy. We just weren't, instead of doing a deal or, or compromising on some of those issues, if, if arguably if the Assembly and unionism had compromised on things like termination of pregnancy around fatal fetal abnormality and um, sexual crimes, rape, um, there's every likelihood that that would have been settled and not, uh, you know, not have needed the, the Human Rights Commission to challenge that in a court action, the UK Supreme Court. So you've all of those things. And, and by the time even we got to equal marriage, and, and to Mike's credit, he did warn at one stage that we were in danger of being the wrong side of history. But by that stage, you know, we'd equal marriage in Scotland, England, Wales, and Ireland. And here was Northern Ireland fighting the good fight against civil equal marriage. I mean, it made no sense at all. Um, so stop putting off 
voters, stop limiting who you or who you think can be labelled as a as a unionist or pro union. Start uh, trying to make the tent bigger and wider. So do you people, you know, look at the Scottish model when they were fighting the ND one referendum. That arguably Gordon Brown made a massive contribution, even though the prime minister he helped to save was the person who'd beat him, um, you know, four years earlier. So you you brought all those pro-union parties together, um, uh, and we've we've managed to put off people and chase them into alliance and green. And not that everybody's that excited about either alliance or green or whatever, but we're we're making it very difficult at times to vote for. Uh, traditional unionist parties, and that's yeah. that's something that that I'm I've no doubt there's still a huge margin pro union are happy with the status quo, but we need to lift our, our political game and make the argument for the for the union and give people a reason to vote. And probably comes back to something quite simple. Too often unionism is associated with, um, the answer is no, Roger. Now, what was your question? Yeah. You know, we need to be a bit more positive. Yes. Um, and, and even there's a but there, but actually, yes, and engage with people, not be afraid to engage with people. The union's a great message to sell, so get out and sell it. Yeah, when, when you were an independent MLA and you were sitting in that naughty corner, um, um, but it was actually a very productive corner, um, Stephen Agnew brought to The naughty the, corner, yeah. Yeah, um, Stephen yeah. Agnew brought through the Children's Services Cooperation Bill, Jim Allister had a spad bill, you had the opposition bill, um, and I was speaking to Colin McDevitt a few weeks ago in this uh, series, and he was saying that backbench MLAs have a huge amount of power to, to do things when they actually yep. put their mind to it, and that little corner showed that. Mm. Um, and the opposition bill had a potential to, change hugely the way Northern Ireland works as a government. Um, did the smaller parties fail first time round or are we just maybe not ready for that type of normal, normal-ish politics yet? Um, no, I don't think they did fail. I, th I suppose that's, that's where our normal is. In, 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 normal, in straight normal politics, and you're somebody that you know has a huge interest in, in studying politics, in normal politics, if you brought down a government, if the opposition brought down a government, you would be lauded as a great success, um, which they did. And there was no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, that the two main parties hated being in government alone without yeah. big leaf of, of political cover of SDLP and, and Ulster Unionists or Alliance. Um, so th that end of it, I think, was a huge success. And to bring down the government, had you had you um, anything like, uh, you know, if you hadn't had, say, for example, uh, if you had more time for them to, to build up a joint, some type of joint basis, or indeed if you changed the structure and had moved designation, I think as well, um, and or you were able to remove a party from government, I think, yes, you could You could have well have seen them changing the, the way they could do, the, the way they could do business. Because I think if everybody had been in government at that time, you would have ended up creating some type of civil service report 
that mm. didn't tell you a great deal about, um, you know, uh, indeed had Arlene maybe stood aside at that point in time, you might have ended up with a senior civil service doing, yes, a bit of a comedy of errors here, but nothing much to see. Yeah. You had a range of, a range of things. But yes, the, the, the opposition bill, um, what I thought was really exciting about doing it was starting to look and to really delve into what's broken here. And most of the time, our assembly actually functions very, very well. Not a lot of people, not a lot of people know this. And it comes back to our comment you made at the start, people getting in and talking to each other makes a huge contribution to even building relations. It's much harder to, to demonize someone that you actually know where you've sat in committee with or you you've drank a cup of tea or coffee, standing beside asking about, you know, how's your granny's new hip doing or whatever. Yeah. And so you've all of those things. And and just to focus on the assembly and what Colin McDavid said, where he's absolutely right. Backbench assembly members have a huge amount of power. And probably in legislative terms, more power than an average Westminster backbencher. Yeah. Particularly say if you take now where the government is an 80, 80 seat majority. Because if the if the executive drawn from the dominant party in the House of Commons doesn't want your bill, or indeed doesn't want some clause in your bill they can easily, they have the numbers to vote it down. Whereas actually when you're doing stuff in the Northern Ireland Assembly, if you can get one of the big parties on board, it's very hard to stop it. So the, the opposition stuff was interesting to do, to get funding and to really start to say, what, where are our blockages here? And most of our blockages are actually in the executive. We need an executive that functions like a government and functions like a collective government. And that's some of my concern. And I still have that concern that we have no collective cabinet responsibility. You know, it's in the Irish constitution that the government will act as a collective. It's, you know, 300 years of Westminster Convention. And we did see it. You know, in the dying days of Theresa May's administration, we did see what happens when collective cabinet government breaks down. Yeah. You know, that you've literally you've literally chaos as to how how to get policy um, anything enacted. So and the problem when I looked at it as a member, one time we'd Simon Hamilton taking Michelle O'Neill, who was Dard Minister, Agriculture Minister yeah. at the time to court over, I think it was Rural Development Funding. Yeah. Arlene Foster taking Mark Durkin, the Environment Minister, to court over, I think it was Belfast Metropolitan Plan or something. I might be wrong on what the issue was, but but you go, this looks ridiculous. And I remember Peter Robinson using the phrase that um, the executive's dysfunctional and nobody batted an eyelid. And I was thinking, right, if if there's equivalents like Enda Kenny, David Cameron, 
or Nicola Sturgeon or, uh, you know, Alex Salmon, whoever it was at that time, come out and said, my government's dysfunctional. Would you not, would somebody not go, well, Prime Minister, <laughs> you really need to go yeah. then, you know. And, but nobody bad an eyelid here. We just sort of accept that. It's just part of the system. So how do we change that? How do we, you know, in my idea looking, that was saying, right, if you and I are going to be in government, you know, we can't be, I can't be out protesting against what you're doing in health today and you protesting against what I'm doing in education tomorrow. If you're in government, act like you're in government. You're in opposition, but don't do government or opposition within the government. I just don't think, I think it just creates dysfunction. Um, and things like voting against a budget. And yes, you know, hands up, I was uh, in a party in the government voting against a budget, but I made it clear at times, this isn't where we should be. Yeah. You know, if we're in the government, surely we should be voting because there's nothing more fundamental to our government than than supply. And yeah. once you start to vote against that, you should not be in the government. I mean, I look at the different times that we had real hope. Um, I remember, and I said this to Peter Robinson one day, my all-time favourite Peter Robinson conference speech was in 2011, where he said, I'm going to end us and them. You know, yeah. we're going to end us and them politics. And I, I remember bumping into him in a, in a voting lobby the next week and going, Peter, that's just the sort of message I want to hear. Like, you, you keep this up, I'll nearly be joining, you know, <laughs> uh, nearly to frighten him. And, and I remember, like, thinking when I was standing for the leadership of the Ulster Unions Party, if the DUP's pushing up against the alliance, where's the space for us? But then, you know, 18 months later, we... we a year after that speech, we had flag protests. We were there, we were in a unionist forum, you know, carrying flags about, you know, super prodding it all over the place and just not in the right space. Instead of setting out an alternative, um, I would have said to DUP, then by the following year, we'd the letter from, from America, you know, and things that. You know, broadly, unionism needs to get its confidence back. You know, it's it's like to use that Jimmy Carter phrase: a crisis of confidence more than anything. Um, and that's where it needs to get back and needs to, you know, like I think actually something like the Mays could have been a really exciting project to do with people having a huge interest in in going to see it. But the narrative could have been got got right. You know, and, and we could have done things like that, but we just never had the confidence. One of the things I was proud of in NI twenty one actually said, "No, we can, we can do this." You know, yeah. we can, we can do this, but it just wasn't worth the political capital needed. You know, at, at, at that time, like in, in the nine years I was in MLA, it nearly it nearly didn't get started. Then it nearly collapsed over devolving policing and justice, and and. Then the UUP nearly tried to make it collapse over placing injustice. Then by the time we get into my second term, you know, those political talks um, right the way through that, 
in terms those talks that we could handle this at the start. Then we had Stormont House One, Stormont House Two, House of Sullivan talks. Um, you know, uh, uh, and like the agreement at Stormont or New Day, New Decade, eventually yeah. getting to that point. So there's there's always been challenges, but it's having that will. And I come back to the basis of this. The more normal we make Northern Ireland, the good, the, the better a place Northern Ireland is to live, the more people want to live and work and stay here uh, and create a good, prosperous society and is a great place to live. The, the more you, oddly, you know, the more secure you can make those who believe in the union and the more viable you can make it for those who believe in the United Ireland is that no one wants a basket case. So stop making this place look like a dysfunctional basket case and make it a good, exciting, prosperous place where people want to, to live and bring up a family and get on with whatever that family looks like. You know, get on with, with their life and stop interfering in that. And the better you can have that debate of staying in the union or a united Ireland, but making it a basket case, nobody wants to take that on. No. You know, it just happens that the, the, the UK has got stuck with it, you know, but actually make this a place, stop making it look like a place apart. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's a, a good place to, to end it as, as any. Um, John, thank you very much for speaking to us.